Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper, and um, my co-host Alexi is still off gallivanting in uh, the lands of ancient Greece, so you're stuck with me again. But I have here a special guest, Robert Manduka, is that correct? Yes. And uh, yeah, so welcome, Robert. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. And you you are a grad student at Harvard, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I'm a PhD student in sociology there. Great. And so you've got a project here you're working on, which is republishing this kind of short, uh, shortish pamphlet book thing by um, Chester uh, Bowles. Is that his name? That's his name. Yeah, that's his name. So, yeah, um, maybe to just start with, can you, <laughs> I've been, I've been reading through this, this book, which, which should be coming out, uh, uh, sometime soon. And, um, it is some head spinning stuff. It, it's, it sounds, you know, where he's coming from and the things he's saying is so alien to, to like current political discourse that, you know, it's like, what country is this guy from again? But so can you tell us a little bit about old Chester? What's his story and how did he end up writing this thing? Yeah, yeah. So um, so the book that we're republishing is called Tomorrow Without Fear. And it's a yeah sort of a pamphlet that he wrote in the uh, in the 1940s, right as the U.S. was demobilizing after World War Two. And they were trying to figure out what the economy should look like after that. And he was coming from sort of an interesting background. So he had originally, his first career was in advertising. He was a founder of this firm called Benton and Bowles, which uh, sort of pioneered the use of radio in advertising. So they did all these like soap operas. And at one point, I think they produced three of the four most popular radio shows in the country during the Depression. Um, and then when uh, when he was retiring from that and uh, starting to enter uh, po- politics, basically, he ended up working as a director of the Office of Price Administration, which was this agency during World World War II that was charged with essentially managing all of the prices, you know, for I think they covered something like 90% of the goods uh, sold in the economy and just figuring out what, you know, what quantities and what prices of goods uh, would best uh, enable the United States to ramp up its war production while keeping inflation down. And so, you know, this was a gigantic agency that he, he managed for about two or so years, uh, the last two years of the war. Um, <clears throat> and basically, again, sort of, yeah, trying to figure out what prices the economy could take and, and, and setting those. And then, uh, yeah, then as the war was winding down, there was this big question about what was going to happen to the economy, because, you know, we'd been until the war, we'd been in depression and there'd been super high unemployment and all this question about whether it was possible to get the economy back to full employment or back to owing. Uh, when the war started, it became very clear, I think, pretty suddenly that, you know, suddenly with the government uh, <clears throat> spending on 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 weapons, that suddenly their uh, full employment came came back. And then there was but there was this question, you know, now that the war is winding down, are we going to have to go back to the Depression era or is there a way to reconvert our all these new uh, productive capacities that we have to peacetime use or to, you know, to to keep people employed um, going forward? Yeah, and the Office of Price Administration was uh, where John Kenneth Galbraith was a, a an official there for a while, wasn't he? Yeah, I think that's right. I'm not sure if they overlapped or not, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, 
So, so you have this business guy who was like the price czar for the entire economy, you know, and a position of unfathomable power. Um, and you know, if you could imagine that happening today and, uh, he, so he finishes up and he writes this, this little book, it's called tomorrow without fear. And, um, the, the, the the place he starts it out is with the economy of 1940 and um you know uh looking at how by a lot of international comparisons um the 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 you know the economy of 1940 in the United States was pretty good um it, it, you know especially if you look at averages you know look at all the automobiles we have look at our huge income look at all the you know consumer goods especially as a fraction of the total output which is you know compared to a much poorer rest of the world um back in those days but then you know he really digs into the data um, in in a classic not conservative way, which is to 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 break out the averages to see if there's inequality and whether or not some people are going without while others have a lot. And uh, you know, unsurprisingly, he finds that that the um, you know things aren't so good. So, I guess to, do you think that his perspective there? In, in terms of you know how he operated this 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 vast bureaucracy was informed by his like lived experience of, in in 1940s and and pre 1940 and previously um the 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 destitution of so many people yeah i think i think almost certainly and i think yeah both the sort of just living through the depression as well as the, you know, the work on advertising and figuring out, you know, what, uh, what different types of people are, are consuming that sort of thing. And then especially, you know, when he's working in this role at the OPA and they have to actually measure, you know, exactly how many, you know, whatever tons of sugar are, are available or how much, how much can a typical person buy? I think all of that sort of almost certainly colors when he's diving into these statistics and he can say, okay, well, here's the average, but you know, what does that actually mean or what does that contain within it? I think those those experiences almost certainly, you know, led him in that direction of let's break this apart and figure out exactly who has how much and who, who is living on what. Yeah, he says, um, <clears throat> quote, as a matter of fact, we had no right to feel very proud of our economic accomplishments in the year before the war. That's 1940. If we compare our achievements to those, let us say, of the Balkans or China, we look like economic champions. But if we judge them against the background of our resources and opportunities, our batting average was nothing to brag about. Um, and what I like about that is that this this is the uh, the perfect rejoinder from 1946 to people like Steven Pinker, who who point to similar aggregate statistics to say, hey, look. Everything's great. Stop complaining, college students, because what matters is isn't necessarily your absolute, you know, level of prosperity or whatever. What matters is the divergence between that and the actual possibilities that that could happen if we, you know, could reform our economic institutions, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right. And <clears throat> yeah, like he says, you know, compared to some of these other countries that are less developed, sure we're on average, better off, but like compared to what we could have and what, and in his case, he's looking back and, you know, we know that two years later, 
war production was soaring and we we apparently we did have this capacity to to make so much more stuff and provide people with such a higher standard of living you know knowing that then that's the comparison that you want to be making yeah and so he goes on to develop a theory which it, uh it, it doesn't have like a worked out economic model behind it you know there's no dynamic stochastic uh, general equilibrium equations that he's writing down about the macro economy, but it's a very intuitive, very compelling, and very convincing about uh, why the um, why the United States, as as it became a developed, industrialized country, experienced worse and worse economic catastrophes. So, could you walk us through that that um, reasoning? Yeah, yeah, and feel free to to jump in if I'm. Uh state everything but but yeah basically i mean so he's looking at the overall you know the history of the country going back to its founding or at least i guess 1845 or so um and so i think one piece of it is basically uh you know it it had been the case historically that the u.s had a much larger agricultural sector and that many people were producing were growing their own food on farms and the the like manufacturing industrial part of the country was was much smaller in terms of its total economy um, but the industrial part of the economy has sort of the, is prone to these cycles, I think, where uh, you'll get essentially um, cycles of sort of uh, investment and overinvestment, and then com- companies will realize that maybe they committed overcommitted, and they'll uh, they'll pull back on their investments, and that's when you'll get a, a downturn or a recession. Um, and so as the as the country uh, you know industrialized and became a bigger bigger chunk of its economy was devoted to to industrial production, where you, which is much more prone to these these cycles, where you're investing in in durable goods and durable um, production production facilities, you can make those investments whenever you want, and you can sort of hold back on making them if this year you're feeling a little bit uncomfortable. Um, you'll get these bigger and bigger um, booms and busts, or these cycles that affect a larger portion of the economy. <clears throat> and then one piece of it where he talks about uh, specifically in the 1920s, which is sort of one of the biggest of these cycles is that a big core of the reason why you get these these booms and busts is that um, you're devoting a, a larger chunk of the of total uh, production to investment again in these these durable facilities um, and and you'll get uh, you have the potential to get these uh, sort of uh, divergence between um, the total productive capacity of the economy and the total amount of income that uh, everyday workers are taking home. And so he points out in the in the 1920s, he shows these graphs that are really, you know, quite remarkably similar to graphs we've seen today. Of you look at the total productive output in various industries, and you look at the wages that are being paid to those people, and they're splitting apart. Where out, output is growing, you know, by 25% over the course of the 20s, and wages are staying totally still. Um, and what that means, he argues, is that essentially the people who are working in those industries are not earning enough to to buy all of the new products that they're making. And so you'll have the total productive capacity is going up, but the total amount of demand in the economy isn't necessarily keeping pace with it because the the incomes that people use for consumption are staying stagnant. And so that's that creates the possibility of eventually um, it'll come crashing down and there'll be a downturn. So you're yeah, that? yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's. Um... That seems exactly right. I mean, on on the one hand, you have this, uh, you, you know, you have a system where whereby, you know, a, a bigger and bigger fraction of total economic output 
is dependent on investment decisions, which can be subject to a sort of self-fulfilling crisis of confidence, where for one reason or another, maybe there's a financial bubble that bursts or something, businesses really cut back on their investment all at the same time, and then that throws lots of people out of work, which which um, leads to less spending on the goods and services produced by the factories that still exist, which leads people to cut back more until you're down to the level of bare subsistence where people are just spending what they absolutely have to spend. And then on the other hand, yeah, as you say in the 20s, um, the, the inequality of of income is an exacerbating factor, massively exacerbating factor to this. Um, because, uh, uh, you know, you have the factories which are getting better and better and better producing more and more, more and more stuff. And yet the income is not flowing to the people who could buy that stuff. And the only way that you can keep the system, um, producing is to, uh, borrow for the, you know, mass consumer credit, but you can't keep on borrowing forever. And when, so when the crisis comes, you know, that's basically the Great Depression in a nutshell. You get this self-fulfilling crisis of confidence that just like tears his huge chunks out of the economy. He, he says, quote, this is one essential economic fact which we can never afford to forget. All the money which we receive in the way of salar- wages, salaries, or profits must be spent by someone ourselves, our families, our bankers, our businessmen, or our government, if we are to go on producing at top speed. Our total spending must always equal our total production if our markets are to be cleared of all available goods and services at prices that, on the average, will cover all costs plus a profit. So, I guess I just, like, restated what you said. But, like, it's really striking to me to see this business dude um, talking about uh, you know, number one, capitalism is prone to systemic crisis all the time. And number two, inequality is a, a drag on economic growth, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, it's pretty, baffling. Right. It's so disorienting coming, coming from today. And yet the story is so, you know, if you think about the recession and like rising inequality and, uh, you know, wages not keeping up with productive capacity, all that. The, the Some of the things he's describing seem very parallel today. But yeah, the idea of, you know, this perspective, especially from somebody who's working in, in business and, you know, who was a, whatever, successful executive. Um, and, you know, it, and he didn't see that this, these views as being in conflict with his, you know, business um, identity or, you know, past as a business person. He thought that this is what you need to keep the economy growing um, so that everyone can have, you know, can do better. Yeah, and and you you sent me this uh, this little um, uh, I, I guess like an advertisement or a, or a sort of propaganda film uh, um, from from like Fortune magazine or something like that. Was- <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think I, I think that's worth emphasizing is that he he wasn't like was not unique at all as far as it, it, apparently in in this outlook, even among people who are in business. So yeah, so Fortune made this movie, which you can. Um, we can, I guess, put a link. It's up on the internet uh, for free. Um, but basically talking about how it was made in the mid-1950s, and they were basically saying, like, you know, look at how amazing our economy is doing. Look at how much we've been growing since World War II. And who is it, you know, who do we owe this to? Who is it? it who, who did it? It's all the middle-income consumer. And what we've seen is that, you know, the middle-income 
consumers' incomes have been growing a lot because the income distribution has become more equal. And that's what's led all the booms in you know, housing construction and appliance um, manufacturing and all these different things. Uh, and, you know, and it all comes down to, you know, we editors of Fortune magazine, we want to thank the middle income, con- income consumer for for making all this possible. <laughs> yeah. And it and it was like the hegemonic business ideology, it seems, or at least to some degree in those days, was the it was it was taken for granted that um, in order for a businessman to be successful and profitable, um, number one, you need to cater to the middle income consumer. And number two, the government, you know, broad economic policy has to be organized such that the middle income consumer keeps getting a, a decent share of the national income. Right? Yeah, I think that's right. That seemed to be, you know, for, for yeah, for a, a good period, you know, maybe 15 or 20 years, that seemed to be acknowledged or accepted that, yeah, the, the, the government has a role to play in keeping people's incomes up so that they can afford to keep consuming, which will then in turn, you know, keep businesses in business and keep people employed. And that's how we can have sort of steady growth with uh, high levels, you know, close to full employment uh, long term. Um, and yet, you know, this, uh, you know, I guess, as we've been saying, as every as everyone knows, that perspective in business is vanishingly rare. Um you you I remember reading the other day that that the uh, Walmart and Target are are attempting to um, they they're pressuring the Federal Reserve to create the these new set of uh, rails which would basically allow uh, debit card transactions to be processed in real time instead of having to wait a couple of days, um, but later in theory could could bypass the the credit card networks altogether. Um, And the big rationale for this, of course, is that uh, credit, you know, credit card companies take a, take a significant bite out of, uh, you know, these interchange fees that they, that they charge cost a a ton of money to merchants, and then they have to raise prices for the consumer something like I saw a Wall Street Journal piece saying, 1% to 2.5%, all prices of goods and services are higher by 1.1% to 2.5% because of interchange fees, like basically a huge national sales tax that just goes straight into Visa and MasterCard's pockets. And so the self-interested motivation here uh, is obvious, but also, you know, even that little, uh, uh, you know, partial justification that, well, this, you know, we'd be able to... uh, 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 sell more products at a lower price to our consumers uh, was surprising to hear coming from these big corporations. So what, what do you suppose uh, accounts for the, the, the shift in uh, the ideology of, of businessmen over the years? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, I think. Um, and it's definitely something that I, I think there have been historians that have been you know trying to puzzle this out. Um, I mean, I think it is important to Realize, or there, there was a, an essay by um, uh, Michel Kolecki, is that uh, the economist um, from 1943, that I think sort of lays out one one piece of it, perhaps, where he talks about it's called the political consequences of full employment, and he's basically yeah. arguing he he also has sort of accepts the same economic logic of how you could potentially maintain 
full employment long term with economic growth after after World War II. But he's sort of anticipating that it's going to be hard to do or hard to, hard to maintain um, because it had because of of some of the political implications. Where essentially, you know, if you take away uh, if you take away the risk of losing your job and not being able to find another one, then that that really shifts the bargaining power dynamic between workers and firms. And so he thinks essentially that businesses are eventually going to sort of, uh, yeah, back away from that and, and, and try not to have that policy, even though it might be better for, for overall uh, profits. Um, so I think you could imagine perhaps there's, and, and there, there was some business resistance to it. Like the, the way in which it was ultimately implemented during this time was, you know, is, is more tilted towards like, we're going to keep um, spending high through tax cuts as opposed to through, you know, public investment, or we're going to keep, you know, we're going to have a fair, a large uh, military expenditures even after the war, which will keep um, employment up in addition to uh, to fighting the Cold War. Um, <clears throat> and we're not going to do as much on the sort of more, yeah, domestic public, uh, public investment side. Um, and so it could be that there was, you know, then maybe when you hit a bump in the road, you know, especially in the 60s and 70s, um, some of the stakeholders who had bought into this might be uh, you know, ready to jump ship back to a different, a different ideology. Yeah, I guess it, we, it, it is important to emphasize, even despite this type of um, uh, reasoning being very common during the the sort of war years and and, and post war years, there there always was a hardcore of of business conservatism that hated the New Deal, hated everything it stood for, did not at all accept this logic of inequality causes, uh, saps economic growth, and have been uh, mobilizing for since that time to the present day to, 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 to stop it, to roll it back, to return to the, you know, 1920s um, logic. And, you know, often uh, oil billionaires are, are, are um, you know, you can see where the ideology comes from there because <laughs> in the in that case you're you're not making anything you didn't find it and you you know just gaining huge profits from other people doing tons of work to extract nature's bounty and so yeah government's government taxation is theft <laughs> uh but uh so i guess you know this this raises the question of of uh you know who this this pamphlet is for like who who do you think he's aiming it at is he is he is he trying to convince because it, it seems like in some sections he's trying to convince businessmen to be like hey this is where your best interest lies but in others it's more sort of a broad audience type of thing what do what do you think yeah and I'm, I'm not 100% sure i think i think he was aiming at a pretty broad audience um, and I know, like, I think the timing of this, it came out, uh, there was a big fight after World War II about whether to keep the Office of Price Administration around. Like, should we keep price control? Price controls were super popular, actually, uh, by the end of the war. There was something like 80% of people said we should keep these going after World War II because they've been keeping, you know, our cost of living, cost of living down. Um, and, and there was this really big fight, um, you know, political fight over whether we should keep the OPA around or, or not. And, and this came out, uh, right, right during that fight. So I think part of it is, and he has a chapter on like, you know, what do we do in the immediate future? And one of the things is we have to keep, uh, keep the lid on prices. So I think one piece of it is just sort of for, you know, a broad, perhaps politically engaged audience about like why, why it is that we should, you know, what, what the policies are, are 
that we're going to need in order to transition to a prosperous peacetime. Um, and I think it was also just sort of, it seems like he has a sort of view of like wanting to, you know, wanting to educate the broad populace or wanting everybody to be able to understand how their economy works and how things could potentially get better and what that will take. Um, you know, what we as, you know, he talks a lot about like we as Americans, we learn during the war at how much we're capable of and all these amazing things that we've been able to do and all this ingenuity that we've unleashed. And like, you know, we want to, he wants to spread that message and make make sure everybody realizes that that's going to be available going forward if we if we put the right policies in place. Um, but yeah, I think it's also probably true that he was aimed at uh, to some extent at business people um, because they're you know they're the ones who for whom maybe it's the biggest logical leap to understand why it is important for you know in order to maintain your own profits, you're going to need to have consumers to buy your products. 